0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists. Since early in 2021, we've been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. Coffee Conversations is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. I am Dr. Cassie Ferguson, and today I will be chatting with Dr. Cecilia Hillard. Dr. Hillard has committed her career to advancing neuroscience research at MCW. She is a professor of pharmacology and toxicology, an associate dean for research, founding director of the Neuroscience Research Center and the inaugural holder of the G. Frederick Kasten Jr. Chair in Parkinson's Research at MCW. Dr. Hillard leads a productive research team in the Neuroscience Research Center, and she and her collaborators have published hundreds of research articles. She is a beloved educator and has received numerous teaching awards for sharing her expertise and insight into pharmacology and neuroscience. As a graduate of MCW and a fellow medical educator, I have such an immense amount of respect for Dr. Hillard's work and for her leadership, and it is an honor to talk with her today. So welcome to Coffee Conversations, Dr. Hillard. Thank you so much, Cassie, for that very lovely introduction. It is great to be here with you. So today I'm gonna cover a really fantastic list of questions regarding the science behind Parkinson's disease. And I encourage all of you who are watching at home to drop any questions you have on that topic into the comments as we go. And we're gonna hopefully get to as many of those as we can today, but let's jump right in. So to begin, I imagine many of our listeners know that Parkinson's disease is a brain disease that affects how people move. Would you begin by talking about how the brain regulates movement? Sure,
1: um, to do that, I'm gonna share my screen so that I can um, show you a picture's worth, worth a thousand words as they say. Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's not always recognized that of course, the brain plays a huge role in regulating how we move. And the primary role is taken by a part of the brain called the motor cortex, shown up here on on my brain model here. And there are cells called neurons that have their their cell bodies up in the motor cortex and a really, really long um, process that we call an axon that goes all the way down the spinal cord and does a synapse or a connection with a second neuron that leaves the spinal cord and goes out to the muscle cell. So this is only two cells that relay information from the brain to the muscle with just one little connection in the spinal cord. And as a result of this, the brain to muscle information travels extremely fast. And this is how we can do things like swing a tennis racket or or take a step or do a dance movement um, without really thinking about it. It's because these um, these memories of how to do things are stored in other parts of our brain and evoke these changes through activation of the motor cortex. So that's the main way we move, but the motor cortex can't do all the work by itself. It needs more information. So for example, it needs to know where your body is in space in order to take a step. Um, You can't take a step forward with your right foot. If your right foot is already the foot that's more forward than your left foot, right? You're going to become imbalanced. So other information about where the body is in space, how tight the muscles are contracted, Um, And and how balanced we are, whether we're standing or sitting, for example, all comes into the primary motor cortex that I showed you a minute ago through processing through another part of the brain that's subcortical under the cortex. Here's the cortex out on the outside. And this brain um, part that I have in the circle is a subcortical brain region that's called the extrapyramidal system. And don't worry about all the words, but just remember that it's the EPS. So, the EPS is the place that integrates all of that information that I was just talking about. So, it grabs data basically from where all your muscles are in space at this exact moment um, and processes it all together and provides that information to the motor cortex. Okay. And that allows the motor cortex to engage in smooth and coordinated movement. So it takes the whole brain. And in fact, more of the brain is dedicated to regulating how we move than any other function. We think about all the other things the brain does. It processes our senses, helps us remember, have our emotions, but more of the brain is actually dedicated to moving. Than any of those other um, components.
0: Thank you. That was a really incredible summary, and certainly just amazing to see how elegant a system uh, our body has to just to do things that seem simple, like movement. Um, so, you know, we're here to talk about Parkinson's disease. Would you um, tell us what Parkinson's disease is and what some of the symptoms are? Sure. So Parkinson's disease was
1: actually um, not discovered, but defined and named by this gentleman who was a physician in in England named James Parkinson. And I really love this definition. As the disease proceeds, the hand fails to answer with exactness the dictates of the will. And I think that's a nice summary of what the primary issue with Parkinson's is, which is that the individual wants to move but cannot engage the movement in a smooth and coordinated way. So the symptoms are motor symptoms, meaning that they're problems with movement and we'll skip the resting tremor just for a second, but there's a difficulty in initiating movement or starting a movement when one wants to. So for example, an individual Parkinson's might want to start crossing the street when the, when the walk sign comes on and have such difficulty in getting that first step going that they wind up Um, putting themselves in danger because they're walking um, past when the walk sign turns off again. Movements are also um, slowed. Um, This is called bradykinesia. So even the movements they do do are happening at a much slower pace. And then um, there's a lot of postural instability, meaning that just a, a little bump of the individual can actually cause a fall which is a big issue with individuals with Parkinson's disease. This is also the reason that Parkinson's um, patients often compensate for um, the instability by using a very wide gait. So they spread their feet apart, giving them a more solid foundation so that they're not um, so easily toppled with um, with this problem of postural instability. So all of these have to do with difficulty and too few movements. The other kind of of crazy thing is that there's also excessive movement. So there's a resting tremor that can occur that usually happens between the finger and the thumb of the dominant hand. So the right hand, for example, Um, it's often called a pill rolling tremor because um, it, it mimics the old people who would um, hand make pills, essentially, um, by, by rubbing those two fingers together. Um, the resting tremor, um, the word resting means that it happens when the person's resting, and when they actually begin to um, move to pick up a pen, for example, the tremor usually goes away. So, Of all of these symptoms, the tremor is often the one that um, the individual or their family recognize first, but is probably the least problematic of the of the issues. Much more problematic are the the slowed movements, the difficulty in starting movements, and the postural instability.
0: Hmm. So you've explained in some detail about how the brain, um, works with the rest of our body to move. Could you, ex- in, in, um, typically, could you explain what happens in the brain of someone who has Parkinson's disease?
1: Absolutely. So very early on, um, in way back before we had sophisticated measures for such as MRI to look at the brain, a way that early scientists and physicians would try to understand how things happened in individuals with diseases and disorders was to look at the brain post-mortally. And here is an example of a part of the brain that's called the substantia nigra. Um, This is looking at a brain sort of from the top down. Um, The substantia nigra is in this plane of the brain. So it's pretty deep down inside of the brain. Um, and you can see why it's called the substantia nigra, it's because, which means black substance. It's because in um, normal individuals, these cells have a black color to them. And what became very clear in individuals who died with Parkinson's disease, this black color was very significantly diminished. So this was a really big clue because the substantia nigra is actually one of the components of that crazy EPS hub that I mentioned earlier. And in particular, it connects to the other parts of the EPS through this very important red line that I have shown here. And this is a neuron that sits in the substantia nigra and provides information to the rest of the EPS by releasing a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Okay, Um, These neurons are lost in Parkinson's disease. These are the neurons that have the black color in the substantia nigra. It's because they also make melanin in addition to dopamine. Um, And so very early on, it was understood that this is an issue of loss of this very critical input into the extrapyramidal system provided by the substantia nigra and carried by the neurotransmitter called dopamine.
0: Hmm. Thank you. So, um, In your explanation of some of the symptoms, I can imagine where those symptoms would be quite frustrating and debilitating. And I imagine that many of our listeners are wondering whether there are therapies or treatments for Parkinson's disease that you can share with us. Yes. So the current therapies,
1: just skip over this, were identified by first by this guy, Arvid Carlson, who actually won the Nobel Prize in the year 2000, because he investigated how dopamine was made and how it was made in neurons. And he identified that it was made from a molecule called levodopa. And this observation allowed in many other researchers and physicians to say, hey, what if we treat individuals with Parkinson's disease who have too little dopamine with levodopa? And maybe that would allow them to have a higher amount of dopamine. By the way, the problem is dopamine itself doesn't get into the brain. So that was a non-starter to start with. But instead, levodopa can get in the brain, gets made into dopamine, and that might fix the problem. And so, levodopa therapy was um, developed in the 1950s and it was absolutely remarkable. It really helped virtually everybody who had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease to move better. Um, and the idea here is that what it's doing is making these neurons from the substantia nigra into the EPS work better. Um, I have them you know, more muscular um, because they're able to make and release more dopamine to help compensate for the fact that some of them have been lost in Parkinson's disease. So levodopa is a really good therapy. In fact, um, it's thought that if levodopa doesn't help an individual who's been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, they may not have Parkinson's disease. It's that it's that um, uh, targeted. The problem is that it doesn't it doesn't work for long, long periods of time. It has lots of side effects. Um, the effects actually wear off. Um, so other therapies have also been developed, and they're all kind of on the same idea, which is let's get more dopamine signaling into the EPS. So another way that has been developed is to make molecules that aren't dopamine, but they act just like it. They're actually drugs, synthetic drugs. Um, primapexol and ropinirole are their names. So these can be taken orally and they get into the brain and they mimic or replace the effect of lost dopamine. So they don't do anything to strengthen dopamine release from these neurons, but they just skip to the chase and can get right into the EPS. And then finally, there's a surgical approach um, that is becoming more and more popular in which small electrodes are implanted into a region of the EPS, and a teeny little bit of current is, is placed into that region, which basically stimulates the EPS. And bypasses again the need for this dopamine input from the substantia nigra. Hmm. So all of these are really, and that's kind of why I was emphasizing how vital it was that first discovery that dopamine neurons were lost really has led to some very logical and quite successful treatments to alleviate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease but that's all they do. They can't, they don't stop the progression of Parkinson's disease, Um, they don't reverse it, they don't prevent it, but they do help a lot with the symptoms.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Well, and on the topic of prevention, do we know what causes Parkinson's disease? So we're learning a lot about that.
1: And the key here, again, is back to that original um, observation that dopamine neurons are lost. So the big question is, why are they lost? Because if we could figure out why they're dying, maybe that could help us prevent them from dying and reverse the disease. So one thing that's very clear is that they die as we age. So if you look at my little graph here, I'm plotting the number of dopamine neurons in the substantia nigra with age. And everybody is on some kind of a slope where they're losing dopamine neurons as they get older and older. And in fact, age is the major risk factor for the development of Parkinson's disease. But there are some people that could, could wouldn't, oh, I, what I'm showing here on this red dotted line is sort of the threshold for showing movement symptoms. So once your number of dopamine neurons gets below this dotted line, then Parkinson's symptoms start occurring. So you can see that, you know, we estimate you could probably lose quite a few of them before you suffer any uh, movement problems. And so it's the slope of this line that's important. So for some lucky individuals, the slope could be so shallow that you wouldn't show any symptoms until you were 200 years old, right? Um, but for others, the slope of the line is quite steep, meaning that they begin to show symptoms when they're quite a bit younger, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, for example. So. The second hints of what might be going on here have come from what we call epidemiologic studies or population studies and trying to understand the characteristics of individuals who do develop Parkinson's disease. And maybe understanding that could help us understand the reasons for accelerated neuronal loss. And some of the things we've learned are that exposures to toxins certain toxins, in particular those that poison the um, cell's powerhouse, which is called the mitochondria, can kill these neurons. In fact, Michael J. Fox, who's probably one of the more well-known people with Parkinson's disease, ascribes his disease to a time in his um, young adulthood when he was um, an actor. And there were... um, exposures to solvents in the, um, in the theater in which they were performing. So not only he, but four other cast members developed um, Parkinson's disease at an early age, which sort of um, supports that idea. Um, secondly, there are individuals who develop Parkinson's disease quite young. Um, and these individuals have a genetic alteration that is probably predisposing their neurons to die. So understanding what those genes are and the proteins that are associated with those genes has really helped us understand quite a bit. Um, brain trauma can do it. So Muhammad Ali, for example, um, um, who exposed his brain to lots of trauma through boxing, developed Parkinson's disease. So just physical Damage and trauma to the neurons is important. And then finally, um, the Spanish flu. So, our last 100 year ago um, pandemic resulted in an upswing of individuals who had Parkinson's disease 30 or 40 years after the flu. In fact, my grandfather had the Spanish flu during this time period and wound up with Parkinson's disease in later life. So this brings up the idea that there must be something that happens perhaps in response to a virus that gets in the brain or the immune system becoming activated in the brain that might predispose to Parkinson's. This actually makes me a little worried about what we might be facing 20 or 30 or 40 years from now um, once the COVID pandemic um, wreaks its havoc. Um, We may see an uptick again as well. So these kind of understandings have led to two big hypotheses um, that are are being studied. Um, One is gets to this idea of the mitochondria. That's what I'm showing here with this little picture. Mitochondria um, are the place at which oxygen gets used and converted into fuel that our cells can use. But Oxygen as a fuel is a two-edged sword. It's essential for us, but it can be converted into a form that is really reactive, meaning that it's, it's extremely labile. I'm showing it here as sort of this nasty molecule. It can bump into other components of cells and damage them. So we need oxygen, but it has this sort of negative side. And so cells have um, a series of compounds called antioxidants that essentially mop up oxygen radicals. So, um, So we have oxygen being made, but we have these mops that are mopping it up. And when this is in balance, our cells do okay. However, when the situation comes where we have too much oxygen, and or too little mops, too few mops, then neuronal death can ensue. And we think that what happens with those toxins I was talking about earlier is that they induce the mitochondria to make too much oxygen radical. And that part of what happens as we age is we lose these cellular antioxidants as we age. So this idea might fit with a couple of the observations of what increases risk um, to Parkinson's. And then the second thing that can happen is, again, too much of a good thing, which is there's these little cells called microglia. These are um, cells that have a job in the brain of cleaning up the debris of dying cells. So let's say we have a dopamine neuron that happened to die. These microglia come along and try to clean it up. But once they get activated, sort of once they get going and cleaning up debris, they sometimes can turn around and actually damage and start chewing on healthy cells in the area as well and make the problem worse. Um, Here, I kind of think of the analogy of... um, of overzealous firefighters putting out a little fire with too much water. So we had a little fire here, but now we have too much water here, which is really causing more damage than the initial problem. So these are the two components, um, mitochondrial damage, making too much oxygen radicals, and then maybe too much microglia. And if we could tackle those issues and prevent the the oxygen radicals or goose up the antioxidants and or get those microglia to calm down. What we hypothesize is we could move everybody's slope up to um, to this one and slow or even prevent the occurrence of um, Parkinson's disease.
0: Well, those are exciting to think about. Yeah. So we've been talking about some of the individual risk factors around Parkinson's disease Mm -hmm. and just to sort of zoom out a bit, are there whole populations that are being disproportionately affected by Parkinson's disease? And, And if so, why, why might that be the case?
1: Yeah. So there are two groups that tend to show lower Parkinson's disease diagnosis. One is women. So it looks like um, estrogen is actually protective against the cell death. But as women age and get further and further away from menopause, their estrogen concentrations get lower and lower. And actually, once they're quite elderly, their risk is about the same as men. So that's that we understand. And estrogen has lots of protective effects in the brain. The other group that's a little bit more difficult to understand is there's less diagnosis of Parkinson's disease among African American or Black Americans. And this is probably due to issues of poor access, under treatment, under recognition that something might be going wrong. Um, We don't think that there's anything particularly protective about. being of Black or African descent, but it's more the socio-cultural problems of healthcare access that may be reducing um, diagnosis, and that the rates may actually be just the same as it is in in white Americans.
0: Hmm. And so you've touched on some of the the newer research around Parkinson's disease. I wonder if you might speak specifically to what the Medical College of Wisconsin is doing in terms of research?
1: Yeah, so we have um, a couple of projects. My lab, for example, is really interested in those little microglial cells. Um, We're trying to understand what pushes them into that overzealous state. and, try, and if we could understand that a little bit better, we could perhaps design therapies that might calm them down a little bit more. I think this might be useful not just for Parkinson's disease, but it looks like most neurodegenerative disorders have the same issue. Um, so my lab's working on that. Um, there's another lab that's very interested in studying basic biology of, of microglia, um, led by Dr. Penny Lamb. Um, she's a fairly new investigator here who actually studies microglial interactions with neurons using zebrafish. Um, zebrafish actually are a really nice model system for studying the brain. Um, they're amazing, they do a lot of behaviors and they have a very complicated nervous system, but they have, um, they're have they almost clear, so you can actually see things um, going on in the brain, which makes them really useful as a model organism. Hmm. Um, Dr. Raman Raman um, in our biophysics department has long been interested in how to reduce oxygen radical formation. And he's been studying some novel molecules that actually could be therapies to increase the mopping capacity. So these would be drugs that actually could function as antioxidants and um, be beneficial um, to treat Parkinson's disease. Um, One more study I wanna tell you about though is done by um, another young investigator in our neurosurgery department. Um, her name is Kajana, and she is really interested in trying to understand how the brain can be rewired. Um, so the idea is, you know, back when I was in medical school, um, we kind of learned that the brain was wired the way it was, and you can't really gain or or um, neuronal function if a neuron's lost; it's gone forever. And what she is studying are these incredible abilities of the brain to actually bypass problems using sensory systems. So um, individuals who suffer from Parkinson's disease may have recognized that they can move better if they're listening to music or dancing um, or even exercising to music. And it's thought that that sensory information coming into the EPS um, can actually help bypass the loss of the dopaminergic input. Mm-hmm. So she's really working on trying to understand how that works and, um, and maybe um, to push that science forward again to provide non-drug therapies, maybe a really good therapy is just music or dancing or things like that so
0: Hmm. yeah another example of how amazing the brain is Uh, yes
1: (laughs) yeah
0: um we've gotten a good number of questions from the people watching Um, so there's a couple different categories of questions i think the first is really around um, symptoms so one of the first questions we got was whether parkinson's disease always whether the symptoms of Parkinson's disease are global or impact both sides of the body, or is there such a thing as unilateral symptoms in Parkinson's disease?
1: So um, again, I'm not a clinician and you may know more about this than I, but I think that Parkinson's is pretty usually bilateral, um, that the the things that are disturbing and killing dopamine neurons on one side of the brain tend to be also operative on the other side. Now that doesn't mean that um, you might have worse symptoms on one side than the other. I mean that could depend, I, I suppose, on your handedness and um, um, and maybe um, you know how the developing how the neurons are dying. But but I would guess that while there may be um, periods where one side is better than the other, that that probably, you're not going to have a situation where one side is affected and the other is completely unaffected.
0: Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. There was another question about um, dementia and Parkinson's no. disease and specifically uh, about teasing out um, Parkinson's disease with Parkinsonism and with dementia or whether, um, you know, how, how dementia um, can be differentiated from Parkinson's disease? Yeah. Like um, so dementia, I'm sure
1: you most people know is an issue of cognition or thinking and memory and putting things together. Um, and we've been really focusing on movement symptoms, but Parkinson's disease has other symptoms, and dementia can be one of them. Um, So can emotional dysregulation as well. Um, There can be depression in Parkinson's disease, for example. And so this is because there are other dopamine neurons um, in other brain regions that are also being lost, um, and they contribute to the symptomatology. Often the movement disorders precede the development of dementia. So we sort of see it as a continuum of movement problems, followed by dementia later on. Now, an individual could have Parkinson's disease and a dementia that is more like Alzheimer's disease and really doesn't have anything to do with loss of dopamine neurons. so, you know, you can't, it, it would take um, a clinician to really try to figure those things out. And some information that might be helpful for the neurologist would be when was the onset of these individual symptoms in the individual. Um, however, the sad end of that story, though, is that we don't really have good ways to treat dementia, regardless of the etiology. So um, so in some ways, it, it's a diagnosis without a real value, unfortunately, I think, for the clinical care, at least at this stage in our understanding and our ability to treat dementia. I just want to mention one more thing, though, as we're talking about dementia. Another thing or two things that can cause dementia are actually or confusion probably more than dementia, but can alter cognition are levodopa and those dopamine agonists I mentioned. Mm. So because they, they, you know, it's very hard. Well, the brain is such a beautiful organ. It's precisely regulating how much dopamine gets into that EPS. So we, you know, healthy individuals have beautiful motor control. When we start to try to use drugs to basically recapitulate this beautiful system. It's very difficult to get just enough dopamine in there or just enough dopamine mimetic in there without getting too much. And what happens when you get too much dopamine in the brain is you can lead it can lead to symptoms of cognitive confusion, even can cause psychosis in some cases so, that tends to be a little bit of an issue to figure out is if someone is showing signs of dementia with their Parkinson's, is it because of the drugs um, or is it because of progression of the disease?
0: Hmm. Hmm. The other um, categories of of questions really belong in uh, the testing and and treatment uh, Hmm. category. So One person asked about whether or not there's a specific test to determine if somebody has Parkinson's disease. There
1: is a very invasive um, lumbar puncture you could do to actually measure. Um, What you do then is you take out a little of cerebral spinal fluid and you can measure the concentration of not dopamine itself, but its metabolites, what it's getting converted to. And you know we've known for quite a long time that individuals with Parkinson's disease have less um, of these dopamine metabolites, with, which fits with the loss of dopamine neurons. Um, I think there are MRI methods that can actually look um, for dopamine as well. But in reality, I think the main diagnosis comes from the clinical presentation. Um, you know, an experienced neurologist um, like Dr. Karen Blindauer here at at um, treats many, many, many people with Parkinson's disease, and and she is you know a very skilled diagnostician. So she will she will evaluate based on. Um, the clinical presentation. Sometimes they'll have people write because um, remember I mentioned that uh, movements become slowed. Well, interestingly, the movements of the hand also become sort of slowed or minimized. So a Parkinson patient will, uh, if you look at their writing over the years, their, their handwriting will get smaller and smaller and smaller. It's called micrographia. So um, so some things like that can help um, assist in the diagnosis, but often it's just watching how the person moves um, is, is the, the clearest way to diagnose.
0: Hmm. Well, and this, the next question then may have been already answered, but I, I do think it speaks to um, a, another topic. And that is if someone has a strong family history of Parkinson's disease, um the the question is whether uh, specialists would recommend testing for younger family members um yeah you know um that's a very intriguing
1: question and and gets into sort of bioethical um dilemmas because um you know i think we do, we're, you know, we're getting close close to treatments that could prevent Parkinson's. And if someone knew that this was um, perhaps in their future, maybe they could do lifestyle changes that perhaps could reduce, certainly lengthen the time before they would show symptoms and maybe um, reduce their overall risk for the disorder. So um, I definitely, Would talk to um, either a genetic counselor or a neurologist about because you'd first have to figure out there have been multiple genes that have been associated with early onset Parkinson's disease. So, question number one would be, you know, what is the gene that is found in our family um, if it is a genetic cause? Um, And then, once that's established, then going forward and looking prospectively at. At um, youngsters or young adults in the family to see if they also have that gene. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think um, it's a little different for Parkinson's, in my opinion, anyway, compared to something like Huntington's disease, where um, it is really a very devastating disorder. Um, Many, many people live wonderful lives with Parkinson's disease. Um, DBS has really been a life changer in many cases. And there are improvements in how to implant and where to implant and how to tune those electrodes that are making it a better and better and better therapy. So Parkinson's disease is, you know, certainly, um, not the devastating disorder that it was even 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so I think there's a lot of hope. Um, there's a lot of hope for improved therapies. And um, as your questioner is asking, there's there may be a lot of hope for early diagnosis, which would allow application of various approaches to reduce the risk altogether. Hmm.
0: I think we have time for one more question. And this has to do with DBS, actually, which you just mentioned, the deep brain stimulation. You mentioned earlier that it tends to be that the, the medical treatments tend to not work um forever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um what the question is about whether or not deep brain stimulation ever gets to that point where it, it does not work anymore.
1: Yeah, I think it it certainly can. Every therapy can. Um, and you know ultimately as i kind of tried to emphasize none of those treatments dbs or the pharmacologic treatments are stopping the progression of loss of those dopaminergic neurons and ultimately the loss gets so great that there's really not much that can be done so um but from what i understand um you know it's um again, at Frederick has a wonderful team that combines neurologists and neurosurgeons to try to lay out a plan where let's see what we can do in what order to really keep um, the, the, the person going without symptoms the longest. And I think that that's, um, that's what to do right now is to really start with therapies that um, may be less invasive, maybe pharmacology at first, then move into surgical therapies um, that could stretch out um, good healthy movement for as long as possible.
0: Thank you. I do think that this is just such an incredible example of of how um, the proximity of our researchers and our clinicians Mm -hmm. really makes this kind of these kinds of advancements possible. So it's really, it's been fabulous to, to hear more about that um, and to learn a lot more about Parkinson's disease. So Thank you, um, wonderful yeah. having with you. <laughs> you as well. Um, so, and if you didn't, if we didn't get to your question, uh, I know there was a few that we didn't have time to get to, please feel free to email us at conversations at mcw.edu. And I hope all of you will join us next month for another virtual coffee break and conversation with the scientists. So thank you, Dr. Hillard. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Bye. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.